The views expressed on this program are not necessarily the views of the station. Content is for educational purposes only. Consult a financial advisor or conduct your own due diligence if investing. The show was pre-recorded earlier this week. The Everyday Wealth Radio Show and podcast are produced and created by Edelman Financial Engines and hosted by Gene Chatsky and Soledad O'Brien. Ms. Chatsky and Ms. O'Brien are not employees or clients of the firm. They receive fixed cash compensation for acting as hosts in related activities and therefore have an incentive to endorse Edelman Financial Engines and its planners. For additional information, please see everydaywealth.com. The 2022 Top 100 Independent Advisory Firm ranking issued by Barron's is qualitative and quantitative, including assets managed, revenue generated, regulatory records, staffing levels and diversity, technology spending, and succession planning. Firms elect to participate but do not pay to be included in the ranking. Compensation is paid for use in distribution of rating. Awarded September 2022 based on data within a 12-month period. Investor experience and returns are not considered. Edelman Financial Engines Everyday Wealth will return next week with a new show. Due to the holiday weekend, today we're rebroadcasting previously aired segments. At the intersection of life and money, this is Edelman Financial Engine's Everyday Wealth with award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien, personal finance expert Gene Chatsky, and Edelman Financial Engine's wealth planner Brian Leslie. Edelman Financial Engine's has been ranked by Barron's as the number one investment advisor in the country. Now, here's Gene Chatsky, Soledad O'Brien, and Brian Leslie. Do you guys remember back in the mid-90s, there was a book called The Millionaire Next Door. I remember that book because my parents bought it for me. My parents were immigrants to this country, and they were like, you need to read this. It, it took a shot, if you recall, at demystifying what wealth looks like and also how people got there. So that was 26 years ago, 1996, when a million dollars was this sum that seemed completely unattainable for a lot of folks. In 1997, there were 5.3 million people who had more than a million dollars in the United States. If you fast forward to today, that number is about 22 million people who have over a million dollars. 85%, this is a number that I didn't realize, 85% of millionaires in the U.S. are self-made. They didn't inherit the money, they earned it. And most are the first generation in their family to make that kind of money. So today we thought we would talk about those earners, those high-end earners. Hi, everybody. I'm Soledad O'Brien. I'm Brian Leslie. And I'm Jean Chatsky. And you're listening to Edelman Financial Engine's Everyday Wealth. What I find so interesting about these numbers, guys, is that it really shifts the idea of wealth is. And like you said, Soledad, who has it? It's not the people that you might think. It's the people that pulled themselves up. But I look at my own parents, right, who grew up, their parents were first generation to this country. They did not grow up with a lot of money. They worked really hard. And and I didn't grow up with a lot of money. Like your father, Soledad, my dad was a college professor. And, and we were certainly comfortable, but we weren't wealthy. I can relate to that. I mean, I, I don't want to say it's poor because listen, I had both parents in my house and they were extremely supportive, but I'll say this, we didn't have a lot of money. Um, I was mm. the middle child of three. My, my dad had to drop out of college when my older brother and I were born to of course support the family. But I grew up in a household where you got one new pair of shoes a year, right? It was before school. And oftentimes they were put on layway uh, before then. And if you mowed the grass in those new shoes, you got in a lot of trouble. So uh, just a hint of advice, don't mow the grass in new shoes. <laughs> but, but, but I think I, as I look back, there are a lot of things that from my past and kind of growing up lower middle class that help 
you to get to where you are. You know, you think about some of these things, like the, the obvious one is just your work ethic, right? When you see your parents working two jobs to support the family and they're running you and your siblings around town for baseball and football and softball practices, it starts to get ingrained in you because you see what's happening and you, you just think it's normal that people work that hard. So then tick through for us, Brian, the clients that you see who come into your office who are doing well. Again, I was surprised that like janitorial services, that wouldn't have been the business that I would pick if you want to be on the million dollar uh, route. And yet it seems like that, you know, certainly from the book, it was that. Talk about your clients who come in. What, what do they have in, in, in common? So as you think about the things that are familiar in a lot of these folks that have been able to, you know, rub two nickels together and, and, and put together a little bit of a, a bag of change, you know, the work ethic is the obvious one. They've busted their humps. This wasn't handed to them. It wasn't easy. Like they had to do it the hard way. So that's the obvious one. But the other thing too is as you think about like, Immigrants, you know, oftentimes they came to this country with very little and had to build it themselves. You know, the other thing, too, is you think about like armed services, like that mentality of like structure of, okay, I got to do this. I got to be at this place at this time. You know, honestly, it just built the idea of delaying gratification and making sacrifices from now to kind of get to where you're trying to go. So, Brian, as you're thinking about these people and, and you're describing my Uncle Bernie, right? I mean, I'm, I'm listening to you describe my Uncle Bernie, who was in the army, parents were immigrants, started a business making medicine cabinets and actually built that up, made millions of dollars, sold it to a big company. You know, he's the millionaire next door, but he's also 90. Right. Who are the millionaires next door that you're seeing come into your office today? Are they the same people just 40 years later? What do they share? They find happiness with less. Right. So they're able to put away and it's not again, they're not getting large amounts. It's not inheritance that they're getting. It's saving small chunks on a regular basis for a long period of time. Brian, let me ask you a question, because it sounds to me like you're saying people's ability to take on risk is also part of that that trait that people and you know maybe that those things are all a Venn diagram of all of these things kind of kit together right if you're an immigrant to this country as my parents were I think that they were kind of like risk what's risk <laughs> we came from another country where my mom didn't speak the language like that's risky already well yeah there, there was a study by the Institute of Economic Research that kind of identified like common traits uh, that that lead to self-made millionaires. And those five traits, I'll give, you, give them to you here. Number one is risk-taking. Number two, emotional stability. Number three, openness. Number four, extroversion. And number five, conscien- conscience, conscientiousness. Boy, that <laughs> was a struggle. <laughs> Can we walk through those one at a time? Is that okay? Yeah. I'd like to just dig into that a little bit. So you said the first one, is risk-taking. Why is that so important on your path to being a millionaire? Well, because obviously with risk comes reward. And you know, why is this common uh, amongst folks who, who have started off from lower middle class? Listen, it, it, when, you, when you have nothing to lose, why not take the risk? Mm-hmm. So you know, that seems to be the obvious one. But you know, as you think about some of these other ones, like emotional stability or, or openness, I think that's one that jumps off the board. Brian, going back 
to that list of traits. When we are looking at emotional stability, I can't help but think about the markets, right? And the fact that in order to make their money, these millionaires, they've lived through really good times, but also really bad times, and they've been able to stay the course. Is that what you find? Or or are they just focused on the end game? I would actually point to confidence, right, Mm -hmm. as the emotional stability element. In other words, they're extremely confident in the capabilities that they have. So whether that's investing uh, where they're trying to grow their wealth or it's actually just creating the wealth in the first place, in other words, their income, I I think confidence is is a big word that I would say jumps out to me along with the emotional stability part. So as we look at these traits, right, they they help one generation create wealth. But in many instances, it comes at a cost. We don't want our kids to have to struggle like we did or like our parents did. We remember those struggles. I know my parents do. And in our efforts to do right by our kids, we've removed the struggle because we can. But that decision has forward impacts, yes? I think about this a lot with my kids. You may struggle with how to pass along financial values, the values you learn from hustling and working hard, sacrificing, and how to pass along those values that were shaped by your experiences to your kids. Here's something to think about. Are you one of those people who has done everything right? You've worked hard and you've saved and you've overcome every single struggle that has come your way, in part because you watched your parents do the exact same thing. And now, because of that hustle, because of that hard work, you accumulated some wealth. But I can't help but wonder, if you're wealthy today because of the values that your parents, who, by the way, had no money instilled in you, what happens with your kids, given that their experiences will be so different from yours? We're talking about how difficult it can be to instill these values from generation to generation when one of the reasons that we worked so hard was that so it might be easier for our kids. Yeah, that, that's that's exactly it. I, I, I'm kind of struggling with this myself, just personally. I, I you know I mentioned earlier I, I I didn't grow up in a rich family. I got three kids under the age of five, and and they're living a much different lifestyle than I had when I was younger and. Of course, I, like I want to provide for them. I want to make sure I get them started off right. But on the same token, like I don't want these kids to be jerks either. I always think that that's the challenge with the next generation conversations, right? I mean, I think all of us could sort of say the hustle, the struggle, the things you didn't have, the things you tick off is like, I knew I was going to leave Long Island in my case. because <laughs> I, I was like, I, I don't want to be here. I, this is not my vision. This is not this is my parents' dream coming from different countries. And I look at my kids and they're like, no, we're good. We like living here. We love the food we get from Whole Foods. We love uh, Uber and food delivered to our door. It's amazing. And you worry that they've lost the hustle, right? They've, they've lost the discomfort that I think does help people want to go on to create wealth. I think a lot of people have that story. More than that, you worry that you've done something to make them lose that hustle. I think we can do a better job of preparing the next generation for becoming stewards of this capital. How? Walk me through action items. Okay, so I have four little potential stewards of capital. Right now, 
I'm going to say, I'm going to put them all at a C minus for managing the capital that their dad and I would leave them. Like we have, And I have failed. I take the responsibility. So what do you do to make sure that the next generation doesn't drop the ball? Yeah, let's get tactical and I'll give you some ideas here and how we kind of approach this. So first of all, education starts early. If you've got young children or you've got young grandchildren, you know, set up different bank accounts or, or maybe use the envelope system. You know, one envelope is for, for spending, uh, one envelope is for saving, and the other third envelope is for giving. The other thing, as children get older, we need to start passing on that, that value of hard work, right? So we need to encourage them to, to experience that. You know, having them do things like mowing lawns or shoveling snow or, you know, babysitting. Uh, those can be good ways to kind of get that value of hard work ingrained in them. But of course, then as they get older and they start going off to college, it's not just writing checks for college. We, we need to get them prepared for the decision-making process. And one of the things I encourage folks to do is sit down with your kids, talk to them about what they're trying to get accomplished, but more importantly, talk to them about the colleges and the programs that deliver the greatest value for their needs. So they can start doing that cost-benefit analysis of, does this make sense? Because listen, it's easy to choose colleges when somebody else is picking up the tab, but that doesn't help you much later on in life when it comes to that decision-making. Brian, I completely hear what you're saying. We should be talking to our kids about money early. I think future generations may get this right, but I know my generation is sort of in that transition from having parents who shared nothing when it came to discussing money to seeing our kids be open books about everything, oversharing. We definitely need that middle ground, I think, one that includes family discussions so that the people that we love know what they need to know. Imagine you're running a business and you say, hey, you're the person that's going to take over. But oh, by the way, I'm not going to tell you anything about the business, the assets, the income, why we have these assets until I'm dead. Oh, which is, of course, when you got to take over. Like nobody would run a business that way, yet we run our own households like that, right? It's such a good example. When my parents were elderly and literally dying, I was like, so maybe we should talk about your finances now that uh, I can't, you have dementia and I actually can't have this conversation. So I, I completely agree. We, you have to have it earlier. And I do think it gives the kids insights into what you have, how you get it, how you potentially can keep it. And that's information they just don't have. As we think about this financial planning process that we take clients through, one of the things I like to do, to do is encourage clients to create a mission statement to kind of define what exactly is it that's important to them? Like, what's that overarching thing that they need to keep in the back of their mind as they're making investment or buying decisions, especially when it comes to big ticket items? You know, like we just got hit in the face with a car repair for my wife, and now we're starting to consider the idea of getting a new vehicle. But you then ask yourself, okay, with the amount of money that you might spend on a new vehicle these days, you say, does this help us? get to that mission statement. And for me, that mission statement is, how do I spend as much time in the outdoors with my family and friends as possible? So I have to be honest, I am not a mission statement kind of person. I, I think they're torture to come up with a mission statement, I mean, even for your own business. But I, I kind of love how you are applying it to fa family financial planning and getting everybody on board with a strategy, asking questions, you know, where do you want to go as a family? What big ticket items are we considering purchasing? How do they help us hit those goals? I, I can really get behind that. I think that's actually really helpful advice. 
Well, one other thing I would say as far as just tactical ends, because this is one thing I really encourage people to do, is set up like a family council. It's almost like a business's board of directors. And these these this family council is, you know, you're going to be making decisions about like where to take vacations, how much to spend, where are we going to stay? And so again, you're teaching the children and the next generation how to make this cost benefit analysis of like, okay, if we stay at this hotel or this resort, that means we may not be able to take the trip to Yosemite later in the year. And like, that's just one of those. Same thing. I see it a lot. We'll, we'll, we'll do it with charities, right? So, you know, parents or grandparents will say, okay, we've got 30,000 that we plan on donating to various charities. Let's have a family discussion about the things that are important and where we should give, how much we should give and talk about it again, like a board of directors would. And that's kind of the purpose of that family council. But the point being is if you're saying, boy, I've, I've never thought about doing any of this with my family, and you want some help starting that discussion, give us a call, 833-PLAN-EFE. Again, that's 833-PLAN-EFE. When my son was 11 years old, he wanted a gaming system. He wanted an an Xbox or a Wii or, or something like that, and I wanted him to learn to save money because I, I recognize that that this could be a problem that passing along this this idea that you really have to save and work hard for generations to come could be an issue in in a family that had some money and so we set up this 401k like system for his we where he had to earn some money doing chores around the house and save that we would match what he earned. As we prepare our children, it's not as if just, okay, one day we snap our fingers and and we're going to teach our children how to handle wealth. We have to do it in small, very bite-sized chunks along the way. And and you brought up the idea of like, you know, matching contributions. This is one thing we do, uh, or I help clients with all the time is, you know, parents or grandparents are like, you know, I've saved a good chunk of change. I'd like to help out that next generation, but I don't want to just hand it to them. And so what we'll do is we'll set up an investment account for that child. We'll say, okay, if you put $200 a month into this investment account, the parent or the grandparent will also put $200 a month into that account. And so again, you're teaching them to delay gratification. But the other thing that you're teaching them about is compounded interest. You're getting them started early. And we're always told, start early, start early, start early. But the point is you get this ball rolling, you're helping them out. And now all of a sudden they're in their mid twenties, maybe early thirties. And this thing started to, you know, accumulate some, and they're like, boy, I got to keep doing this. And so, you know, that's one way we we found a lot of success and kind of getting the traits passed along, but also helping them out as well. You are 100% on the money, Brian. I've included my son, Jake, in my conversations with my financial advisor. And it has really changed how he manages his money. The advisor, he's, he's helping Jake actually manage this money. And I'm, I'm always so happy. I mean, you guys know I'm a money nerd when Jake will say things to me like, well, I have to talk to my financial advisor about this, right? I mean, I think that's the point, Brian, that you can be this counsel, not just for the parents or the grandparents, but you can talk to the kids too. And you can sometimes do it in a way that we as parents can't. Well, I, I think that's the biggest point. These are things that we do all the time. And we bring that creativity to the table on thinking about not just 
you know, getting dollars and cents passed along, but how do we get those values? We got 300 plus planners across the nation that can help you out. Give us a call, 833-PLAN-EFE. Once again, that's 833-PLAN-EFE. We are going to take a short break. When we come back, you know, there are a lot of people, maybe you're one of them, who retired. Uh, About 50% of people age 55 and over were out of the workforce because they retired by last October. Well, now many of them are getting back in. We're going to talk about why and how to handle it if you're one of them. I'm Jean Chatsky with Soledad O'Brien and Brian Leslie. You're listening to Edelman Financial Engine's Everyday Wealth. We'll be right back. With talk of a recession coming, it's time to ask yourself, is your financial plan ready to handle it? Talk to an Edelman Financial Engine's wealth planner and learn how to help prepare for whatever lies ahead. Call 833-PLAN-EFE or visit planefe.com to get connected. So according to the Institute for Economic Equity, there is a 7% increase in the number of retirees from January of 2020 to October of 2021. And 7%, that may not sound like much, but we're actually talking about 3.3 million people, 3.3 million new retirees. Fast forward to today, though, and you've got some new retirees with some new regrets because we've got high inflation rates. We've got rising interest rates. The Fed has raised interest rates four times. The The short-term interest rate, the federal funds rate, now sits between 3.25 and 3.5%. That, by the way, is, is the rate at which the federal government lends money to banks overnight. And the market the market's not liking it very much. Uh, Over a week ago, we sank back into bear market territory in the Dow for the first time since its January high. We've been there for the NASDAQ and the S&P as well. Add it all up. And you got a lot of people saying, hey, my dollar's not going as far as it was. My interest rates are going up. My portfolio is slumping. Maybe that retirement was not a very good idea. We've been talking about earners who've built wealth, but now we've got a completely different situation. People are worried that they're not going to be able to hold on to the money they've got or at least make it last as long as they need it to. I was reading a statistic the other day. I think the unemployment level for the prime working age folks is is back to where it was pre-COVID. But for folks who are 55 and above, we're still not seeing those numbers back to where they were pre-COVID. And I think what that tells you is there's been a lot of people who got a little taste of retirement when we went to this work from home environment and, and they just said, I ain't going back. Why not go back? What were the things that they regretted? I suspect if you were working from home and you were kind of on the brink of retirement, you're like, yeah, this is kind of nice. I don't have the daily commute. Uh, I, you know, spend more time at home with my, you know, spouse. Uh, on the other hand, there's those of us with small children at home who <laughs> were like, I got to get back into the office as soon as I can. But if you dipped your toe into the waters of retirement earlier than you expected, what is it that you're regretting now? Where's the pain? Think about all the things that have happened. A lot of people, when they were, you know, thinking of this idea, you know, you sat down at your kitchen table, you, you took your pencil out and you said, okay, here's my expenses. You know, here's what my social security will be if I start it now. You know, I, 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 can, I can make this work. Well, 
you pull the trigger. Now, all of a sudden, you're 6, 12, 18 months into this retirement. And guess what? Your investments have gone down. They're no longer at the value they used to be. Your costs are going up because of inflation. And now, all of a sudden, the car broke down or the roof has got a leak and house repairs are up. And, and, and all of a sudden, you're realizing, oh, shoot, maybe, maybe my math wasn't good on the front end. Maybe this, maybe this isn't going to work out. The biggest decision there is probably Social Security. And what we know from history is that more than half of people take it before they hit full retirement age. About a quarter of people start taking it right at 62. I find that a lot of people don't understand how much money you're leaving on the table when you take Social Security early. Can can you break it down for us? What happens when you decide, yeah, I'm just going to do this because, hey, I got a long life and I want the money now? Well, the, the most kind of widely talked about thing with Social Security, and we're all aware of this, of course, you delay, you get more, right? Those what are called delayed retirement credits. And, you know, delaying past your full retirement age to out to age 70, it goes up by about 8% a year. But here's a couple of things that aren't talked about in regards to Social Security as much. Uh, The first one is, remember, this is the one source of income for many people that is indexed for inflation, right? So the more you can build your retirement income plan around Social Security, it builds in a little bit more of an inflation hedge for your retirement income plan. The second point that I would make is it's more tax efficient, right? One dollar that you have to take from your retirement accounts from a pre-tax account like a 401k is one dollar that shows up on your tax return. One dollar from Social Security, on the other hand, will only show up as 85 cents on your tax return. I think all of these are good reasons for why you need to be, you know, very considerate of when to take your social security. Brian, are there things that are different if you're single versus if you're part of a couple? As an individual, when you think about delaying, you know, it's just quick math. You you say, okay, if I'm going to delay, that means I'm not getting anything in the first couple of years to get a higher amount in my later years. And you just you know, pull out the calculator and you say, well, how long do I have to live to recoup what I gave up in the first few years? And on average, that number is right around 12 years. So just as an example, maybe you're trying to decide between taking it age 66 and age 70. Well, add 12 years to 70 and it's about age 82, right? So you say to yourself, well, if I think I'm going to live to age 82, uh, I'll delay. And the problem is, of course... At- we, none of us know when our expiration date is going to come, but you have to think about when to take it as a risk management tool. Because if you're a married couple, the person that has the higher social security amount, that's the benefit that continues for the rest of both of your lives. So I, I think about my own situation. My wife stays at home with our three children. Sh- she did work, so she'll have some Social Security benefits on her own, but her benefit is most likely going to be a spousal benefit off of me. But I come back to my benefit. When should I take it? Well, when I go to pull the trigger, I can't just look at my life expectancy because I have to remember if I die at age 71 and, and maybe I delayed till 70 and I pass away at 71, well, gosh, I only got it for a year. But remember, my wife now is going to switch over and start taking my benefits. So the point I'm making here is the higher earner, 
their benefit continues for the rest of both spouses' lives. So it provides some longevity insurance for that other spouse. And I think this is one element that a lot of people overlook. The problem is, remember, especially if you're the higher earner, and I see this too often, you got to remember, it's not just about you. It's also the person that that's next to you. And that's what any of the 300 advisors that we have at Edelman Financial Engines can help you with. To get a hold of us, give us a call, 833-PLAN-EFE. Again, that's 833-PLAN-EFE. So if a client comes to you and says they're thinking of taking Social Security early, how do you create a plan in order to make sure that you have the specific right scenario for their situation? Yeah, I think this is this is an important thing because remember, you know, you may be listening to this and say, Brian, it sounds like you're telling me I need to work until I'm 70. And, and, <laughs> or till you I, die. It yeah. sounds like you're saying literally work till you die. You can avoid a lot of complicated conversations and decision making. Well, yeah, I mean, and, and to be clear, that's not what I'm saying here. What I'm saying is if you're going to make the decision to retire, especially earlier, that's okay. But we have to look at what other resources do you have available? And if possible, can we live off of those resources while we delay the Social Security element? And I think that all too often, folks kind of overlook taking a look at the entire picture, and they get so concentrated on, well, gosh, I don't think I'm going to live long enough. I'm just going to take it now. Mm. Um, and I think that's a big mistake. But, you know, coming back, like this is where a professional advisor can kind of help you out and help cover the blind spots that you may not know you have. If you've got somebody to talk to, that's fantastic. But if you don't, it's a good idea to pick up the phone and call Brian or one of his 300 colleagues at 833-PLAN-EFE. You can also visit on the web at planefe.com. It sounds so complicated. Like, how would you actually be able to figure this out if you didn't sit down with all of your information with somebody who could help guide you? I, I just can't imagine making this decision kind of on your own. I mean, nobody knows when they're going to drop dead. You really need someone to help you run the numbers to see what you're going to have access to and, and how you're going to live the rest of your retired life. It is time, and I love this time, for our segment that we call Investing Sense, where we focus in on the behavior of investing and some of the traps that we all might fall into. This month, Dr. Wei Hu, Vice President of Financial Research for Edelman Financial Engines, is joining us to talk about hindsight bias. Wei, welcome back. It's always great to have you. Nice to see you. Thanks, you guys. Great to be back again. With the market in a sustained downturn this year, way it's it's really tempting to just look back and say, "Hey, we should have seen this coming." I guess my question is, should we have seen this coming? Yeah, so that's a very understandable uh, instinct. Uh, so you know, the newspapers give us a very neat summary of how we got here. You know, so uh, you know, there's inflation coming out of you know, the, the end of the quarantine, largely in the U.S. economy. Then there was the war in Ukraine that helped uh, also kind of fan the flames of inflation. And then now the Fed has to raise interest rates to fight inflation. And that is causing fears of a, re a recession uh, that we might already be in. And that hurts uh, stock prices and the higher interest rates hurts bond prices. So it feels like this was all destined to happen. And that, that feeling 
uh, is really evidence of a persistent behavioral bias that, that's called hindsight bias. But what is hindsight bias exactly? Is it just hindsight? Like looking back now, boy, I can mm-hmm. see it. Uh, one part of it is that people actually revise their opinions of what they thought was going to happen afterwards to fit the facts. So an example of this is there is a study of failed entrepreneurs, you know, failed startups. And at the outset, when they asked their opinions, uh, about three quarters of them thought they would succeed. Uh, but after they had failed and after they had quit, uh, only 59% of them thought that they would have succeeded. So it's not just that they changed their predictions to adapt to new information. They actually distort their memories of what they thought afterwards. And so that consequence of that revision of history is that uh, some people can start believing that they uh, actually predicted what already happened, and then they start getting overconfident about what might happen in the future. And that overconfidence leads to a lot of not so great decisions, such as market timing decisions with their investments. And we know that those don't tend to work out very well. I'm curious why we have hindsight bias. Is it connected Mm. to that sense of self-confidence, I guess? It is. We distort our memories to to fit the facts afterwards. Uh, That's really related to our innate tendency to put ourselves in the best light. So we'll change our memory of what we predicted to make ourselves look good, better than we actually deserve to in many cases. Well, so getting back to what got us here and the difference between bad luck and something that is likely to happen, wouldn't you say it was obvious that we would end up with stocks falling this year? Bonds maybe a little bit less so, but but definitely stocks. This is where it gets tough to to look back in retrospect. And there's a couple of ways to think about it. So if you look at the actual news headlines in early January, when the market was at near its peak, you won't find a ton of predictions that actually panned out with how things have evolved this year. Uh, So, you know, when the markets had hit a new peak, uh, you know, not everyone was pessimistic by definition, because if everyone was pessimistic, then they would not have bought stocks at that high level back in January. Uh, So another way to convince ourselves that it wasn't obvious that stocks should fall this year is to kind of do a sanity check on yourself and and ask, did I predict what was going on, what was going to happen back in January? And if I did, did I actually have the conviction to sell out of stocks? Uh, And I think the honest answer for the majority of us is no. And actually, for the vast majority of professional fund managers, the answer is also no. Uh, Because if most investors had actually believed and predicted the stock market would decline, then they would have sold out of of stocks. And that's when the decline in in stock prices would have happened. So how do you avoid hindsight bias? Because all these things that you're ticking off seem to be be very much built into our DNA. Confidence, bad memories, not really tracking things in the long term, not really wanting to admit you were necessarily wrong. Yeah. So one way to start on that is to talk to other people, whether it's your friends or your family members, and and see what predictions they have and do their opinions, when you hear their opinions, do you change your mind? If you do change your mind, then 
you should be kind of honest with yourself and say you don't have a high confidence in your prediction, whatever it is, whether you think stocks are going to recover from here or continue to, to fall from here. A little bit more work than that, um, you could actually start writing down your feelings about investments uh, maybe once a week or even once a month where what you think is going to happen in even f- whether it's in financial markets or geopolitics, if that's your it's, that's where you kind of suffer from overconfidence and hindsight bias the most. Uh, but also, not, don't just write down what's going to happen, what you think is going to happen, but write down when you think it's going to happen. So it's not enough to just say, I think stocks are going to fall at some point. Uh, if you wait long enough, stocks will fall eventually. And then you can say, oh, <laughs> you I was right. right. You know? And another thing you could do, actually – Keep track of kind of a paper portfolio where you you write down what trades you would make, and then you can track the performance of that over some lengthy time period, not just a few months, and compare it to more more of a steady portfolio at a similar risk level. And sometimes you'll have made the right call just by sheer luck, but chances are, like every one of us and, and like most professional investors who do this full-time, you won't beat the market on a systematic basis. And then finally, uh, uh, you know, probably the best thing to do is to talk to a financial advisor. Uh, so an experienced advisor will have been through good markets and bad markets, and they'll know that trying to get in and out at the right times is basically impossible. Missing even a few of the best days in the market, even during a bear market, could seriously reduce your returns by many percentage points. And that those few really good days can actually come when uh, when we're in the middle of a bear market and things look really really grim. Uh, those can be some of the some of the best days, best single days in the stock markets. And if you have somebody that you're already talking to about these things, that's great. You just pick up the phone and you call them. But if you don't, and you're looking for somebody who could be that personal sounding board. For you, one of the 300 plus advisors from Edelman Financial Engines would love to help. You can pick up the phone and you can call 833-PLAN-EFE or visit them on the web at planefe.com. I think sometimes you just need this voice of sanity and, and having a good financial advisor can really provide that. So we're out of time, but thank you so much, Wei, for joining us for Investing Sense. Dr. Wei Hu is the Vice President of Financial Research for Edelman Financial Engines, and he joins us every month to help us understand the behavioral aspects of investing. I find that, like, why we do what we do with our money so, so fascinating. And of course, if any of you have a a question or a topic that you'd like us to discuss on air, just visit everydaywealth.com to submit your question. And together with an EFE Wealth Planner, we'll talk you through some potential solutions that would be personal for you. And if you want to catch a show that you might have missed, you can always pick up the podcast. Oftentimes, the podcast will actually have an extended version of the show that we're not able to air on the radio because of time constraints. You can download our podcast at everydaywealth.com or wherever you stream your favorite podcasts. And while you're there, take a minute, leave us a review. We love feedback. So if you like what you hear, or even if you don't, we want to know about it. Also, take a second and subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Have a great week, everybody. 
You've been listening to Edelman Financial Engine's Everyday Wealth with Soledad O'Brien, Gene Chatsky, and Brian Leslie. Tune in each week for fresh and compelling insights and strategies to help elevate your financial potential. To learn more, visit our website, everydaywealth.com, or find our show wherever you stream your favorite podcast. podcast.